This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it's a great privilege for me to be sitting here with Adrian Reynolds. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's nice to see you here. Yes, nice to see you too. And what is your actual title now? With um, I'm Associate National Director, mm-hmm. which sounds rather grand. It just means I turn my hand to all kinds of things. Uh-huh, very good. At the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. That's right. Yeah. Excellent. Fantastic. And you're no longer based in London. Where are you based? Um, so, no, I had eight years, nine years living in London, not far from you. Loved it, but um, couldn't afford to carry on living there. <laughs> so I'm where the headquarters of the FIEC is, which is in Market Harbour, which is a small market town just south of Leicester, right bang in the middle of the country, mm-hmm. which is great for getting around the country. Mm-hmm. But um, I do miss London. Yeah. I miss the nationalities. I miss the buzz. Mm-hmm. So I come back every now and again for a fix. And, and here we are. Here we are indeed, London, yes. In Westminster Chapel. Yes. In fact, we were stopped on the way here. I was walking here with a friend and we were stopped by someone who wanted to talk to us about Christianity. Well, well, that never happens in Market Harbour, oh, um, but it happens in London. Wait, so were you looking particularly sacred? He overheard then? us oh, talking really? in a coffee shop and followed us out. How oh, fascinating. So there we are. Oh, well done. And are you near the countryside there? Or? Yeah, so we can see the battlefield of Naseby site, oh. not the actual um, battle, but the, the, the site of the Battle of Naseby out of our back, uh, back window. Oh, extraordinary. Along with some sheep. Along with some sheep. So yes, it, um, who inhabit the battlefield of Naseby. So yeah, it's quite rural. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, is it, what is the countryside like around there? Well, it's quite rolling. People think Leicestershire is quite flat. It's quite rolling hills, so a classic English countryside. I don't, you don't notice it in the car, but I go out on my bike quite a lot, and then you do notice where the hills are. You're a cyclist, aren't I you? I do like cycling, yes. My form doesn't always give it away, but um, I, am a, I am a keen cyclist. Although hills, I'm not so good at hills. Uh-huh. I've got more to get up the hill than the average man. Well, what's the furthest you've cycled? Um, probably 100 kilometres. Wow. Um, I went out with two other ministers who were completely mad. Mum's an ex-professional rugby player. Mum's an ex-Royal Marine. Benefit of hindsight, it was a mistake. Um, and actually, going up the hills, they displayed two different kinds of um, encouragement techniques. So the guy who had been a professional rugby player would cycle up the hill as fast as he could, cycle all the way down again, come alongside me and say, come on, come on, you're a wimp, come on, go faster. <laughs> Whereas the guy who'd been a Royal Marine would slow down when he got to the hill so that he was cycling alongside me and say, come on, you can do it. Come on, just go zigzag. That's a bit easier. So two very different approaches to encouragement. Did you have a preference? Um, I think I preferred flat (laughs) terrain. (laughs) Very good. So where did you come from before your nine years in London? Um, I'd been a pastor in Hampshire Mm -hmm. for nine years. Um, in rural Hampshire, north end of Hampshire, so towards Sandhurst and um, almost up into Berkshire, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been there, and before that, I actually worked in and around London. So I'm, I'm from the southeast originally. Mm-hmm. In fact, from Essex. I'm an Essex boy. Mm-hmm. And was it while you were in Essex that you came to hear the gospel first? Yes, yeah, so I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Um, I grew up in a nominally Christian home, I guess. Went to church at Christmas, that was about it, really. And then, age 12, my friend, Michael Raffin, invited me along to a crusader camp, which I and my parents thought was a kind of outward bounds, you know, adventure holiday. <laughs> and so I went along, and on the 29th of July, 1981, which is the day that Charles and Diana got married, we watched the royal wedding in the afternoon, and in the evening I was converted. Uh-huh. Wonderfully. So age 12. And um, then was kind of discipled, really, in the crusaders as I was growing up as a teenager. Mm. And a, just a friend brought you along. Yeah, yes, he did. And um, the irony was he dropped out of it soon after. He just enjoyed it because it was very sporty, I think, and he enjoyed all the sports that they were doing. So uh, Michael Raffin sadly dropped out of it, but I stuck with it. 
-hmm. and here I am to tell the tale. In fact, interestingly, the um, Crusader leader, um, there were a couple who led us, and the the lady who led this Crusader group died, I think, last week, age 92. Mm. And um, I was just reminded when I got the the little note through the post that said she'd, she'd gone to glory, just the significance that people could have in other people's lives. Mm. And especially those who work with young people. You know, I I didn't come from a Christian background. I didn't really know anything Christian. So there was this one couple and another couple whose daughter I actually eventually married. I thought I ought to. Um, That's romance for you. And um, (laughs) they were so formative in my Christian life. You know, they taught me everything I knew. I didn't get that at home. Mm. And um, so when I heard that she died and gone to glory, I kind of had a a little tear and um, a prayer of thanks, really, just mm. for a, a life well spent, mm. you know, invested in young people and making a real difference. That's beautiful. Possibly better than she ever knew. Mm. Well, when we give the walks in the, in the city, uh, one of the things we rejoice in telling people is I love to take people up the, the street up which John Newton used to walk so that he could go and wave to his dear adopted daughter who had been put in the uh, Bethlehem Mm. mental institution. He would go up there every day, every day, whatever the weather, until he lost his eyesight. The point being that these heroes of church history, (laughs) well, really, there's only one hero in church history, and they all remembered, he loved me before I loved him. That's right. And what comes out from that is not, if I'm good enough for him, he'll like me. No, no, he loved me before I loved him. I heard Tim Keller say, he said, uh, What the world needs is a philosophy that makes people humble. And these Mm. people who are heroes to us, these heroes from church history, they have been changed. (laughs) And it actually has made them graciously fruitful. Yes. And they're very resilient as well in some ways. They stuck with it, didn't they? In ways, actually, that um, people often don't stick with things today. And I think, again, it's the same reason. They they stuck with it because because Christ sticks with them. You know, there's, there's there's a recognition that actually... God has been good to me in Christ mm. Jesus and you know he's stuck with me through thick and thin mm. he's never left me and therefore I need to stick with others and I think it's it's as much as anything it's the resilience of some of these people who work so in in this case this lady who worked with young people year after year after year and never gave up and despite I it, I mean I don't know I was probably naive at the time but probably many discouragements yes like Michael Raffin, <laughs> you know, p- people leaving and walking away. I mean, there were hundreds of discouragements like that, but mm. sticking with it. Mm. So it's that, it's that resilience and the ability to persevere mm. that I think is, is just, you know, you have to admire that, really. Mm. You tend to find these people often are, um, they're people who will show you jewels in the text, uh, which you might not have got from a, a textbook, but they found it because they, they need him. They need their roots watered. And then they've, not only do they need him, but they, they, they enjoy him. That's right. And they have That's right. made that discipline of grace yeah. to feed on exactly him. Right. Old Spurgeon had a similar story, didn't he? He said, that, that he said I, learned, I never learned any more theology than from this, uh, this dear lady who was, was she the, 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 the matron of his school or mm. something very similar? Mm. And you find um, she taught him everything valuable that he knew because she taught him the, the, the gold that she had found. And he hadn't found it bettered. No. I used to find that when I was a pastor going around visiting people, which sort of has fallen out of fashion a bit, yeah. really, with, with yes. pastors. I think it's a shame. Mm. I used to visit this dear old saint every week, uh, Barbara MacDonald, she was called. She was married to a man called Donald MacDonald, who was from Sutherland, right at the top end of the country. He was one of five brothers, all called Donald MacDonald. Um, which was quite extraordinary in itself. And he'd been the a, brothers were all called they Donald were all McDonald. called Donald McDonald. <laughs> he'd been a vet with James Herriot, oh. and so he had a sort of wealth of great stories. Anyway, um, soon after I became the pastor, he died, and left his his widow. She was reasonably frail; she couldn't get out very much. 
I used to go and see her once a week, and it was just the best hour of my week. It was extraordinary. Wow. And she used to say to me, Adrian, I'm so glad you've come. It's really cheered me up and done me so much good. And I would say to her, you've no idea. Actually, this has done me a lot more good than, you, than probably it's done for you. She wouldn't accept that. She was very humble. Mm. But it did me a world of good. Just mm. hearing how, you know, over 90 years she kept going mm. and how through, you know, some very difficult times, actually, um, she'd been able to persevere. And again, that resilience that the Lord had given her. Mm. Well, this um, is it. We were looking did me, did me a great good. Yeah, we saw that in uh, Joy, uh, John 7. We're looking, going through John. This whole thing, Jesus says, those who, the one who comes to me, living water will flow from him. And Thomas Brooks says something very similar, how life is more frequently coming from. <laughs> it's more better to give than to receive. You think, yes. oh, I've heard yeah. that before. Yeah. But it's something you're finding in practice. Yeah, it's glorious. So you were, you, you were converted as a child. Did you have brothers and sisters and so on? I had a brother and a sister. Mm-hmm. Still have, in fact. An older brother and a younger sister. Mm-hmm. And um, I, was, I was just the black sheep, though, really. Mm-hmm. You um, were the believer. I mean, they came along to things. My parents came along to things occasionally, but the gospel never really took hold in our family, mm. which is great sadness. Mm. But my wife's family were almost entirely a Christian. Um, it was just a different world, really. Mm. Her parents were very kind um, and generous. And um, uh, I thought, therefore, I ought to marry her. She was the last daughter remaining. And um, so we started dating. Actually, we started dating 35 years ago yesterday. Mm. She reminded me. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I forgot that. But, um, so 35 years ago, yes, we started dating. Mm-hmm. And um, again, she did me a great lot of good. She was much more mature than I was um, because I think she'd grown up in a Christian home. So she knew things I didn't really know. Mm-hmm. And um, that was great. That was a great good to me. Mm. And then you were, did you go and study? Yes, yeah, so I read economics at um, Loughborough University. It wasn't very clever, didn't work at hard, very hard at school, but mm-hmm. um, read economics and then trained as a chartered accountant, worked in the city for a bit mm-hmm. and worked for the serious fraud office investigating Robert Maxwell. Oh, gracious. Which keeps me going with dinner party stories <laughs> um, until he discovered that I also worked for Mohammed Al-Fayed. Oh, wow. So I, I was his troubleshooter for a few months and um, tried to buy a radio station for him. So there's, there's lots of good stories that, um, <laughs> you know, in the right setting can come out. <laughs> And so I, I, and then finally worked for a drug company, um, basically doing business structure work, putting businesses together and structuring them. Mm. And uh, so that took up the first 10 years, really, of my working life. Mm. And from there, I went to be a pastor. Mm-hmm. So training for ministry, how, did you, how were you trained for ministry? Well, I did, all, I did all bits and pieces of formal training. I never did any big formal thing. So lots of bits and pieces of, of formal training. The big thing I did, really, was I sat at the feet of a wise old bird for three years. His name was Eric Lane. Mm-hmm. Um, his, and he's still alive. He's in his late 80s now. Um, a wonderful brain. In fact, um, we're, we're sitting in Westminster Chapel. People might not know that, but we're sitting in Westminster Chapel. For many years, he was part of the Westminster Fellowship mm-hmm. with Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And um, I have another friend who's also gone to glory now who, who once came to the Westminster Fellowship and tried to impress the good doctor by asking him a difficult question. And um, Eric Lane doesn't know this story. And he probably, I'm hoping he won't listen to this because he'll be very embarrassed to hear the story. <laughs> but um, uh, Lloyd-Jones saw right through this, this other guy who was asking the difficult question and said to him, um, if you need to know anything about the Bible, you need to go and talk to Eric Lane. He knows more about the Bible than any man I've ever met. Mm. And that was his kind of, um, and I heard this from my, from my friend who had kind of tried to drop the clangor. Um, so I don't think Eric Lane knows that story, but he had an encyclopedic and does have an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible. Mm. And... Um, I, I sat at his feet gladly, uh, 
at age 80, he was still changing his mind about things, mm. not significant things, but kind of thinking, why do I believe this? Is it right? Mm. Still challenging, still trying to grow. And that really has, has stayed with me. Mm. So I, I enjoyed sitting at his feet. And mm. I think probably everything I've learned that's useful um, came from him, really. Mm. Where, where was this church? This is in Yately, which is in North Hampshire. Uh-huh. So I went to be the pastor, and at the same time, he was there, retired. Mm. So he took me under his wing. And in fact, once I was sort of, we'd done my period of qualification that we kind of assessed, um, he said, you want to carry on meeting? And I said, I'd love to carry on meeting. Mm. So we carried on meeting every week. Oh, lovely. And um, we had a great time together, really. So He's a good friend. And he's still in touch? Yeah, we're still in touch. He's very frail, very elderly, but still writing, amazingly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he writes Bible study notes for people. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, the church there, uh, not, I haven't heard of him. So I'm imagining this isn't a prominent, large, significant uh, national centre. No, no, not at all. And Eric would have been in three or four churches, I guess, in his time. He was an Anglican. Um, so he was in, a, in an Anglican church in Leytonstone in the 50s and literally crossed the road took his whole congregation with him. Gracious. He was one of the first Anglicans to leave, really before all that 1960 stuff had blown up, um, became convinced really about it. Um, so he's from that sort of era, um, delightful, mm. delightful man. He's written a few books and things, but no, he's not you know, the great star. People, mm. You say to people, Eric Lane, mm. and they say, who's that? Mm. Occasionally people have heard of him, but mm. um, I've heard of him and that's what counts. <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah. And was there anyone he particularly pointed you to who became a, a friend, as it were? He got me reading Puritans, which I didn't always find easy. John Owen, he's kind of... You know, people who tell you they've read every volume of John Owen, I think, you know, they're either superheroes or they're they're not quite telling Mm -hmm. the whole truth. (laughs) So we would read John Owen together, which I found helpful. Um, We could unpack it a little bit. Um, I think probably the person that I enjoyed most, I hadn't really heard of until I met Eric, is John Flavel. Oh, yes. Flavel, depends how you want to pronounce it. I think it's Flavel. Mm -hmm. He's a West Country boy. And a a fine preacher... And a fine writer. Mm. And another courageous man, actually. You know, ejected from his church in Dartmouth. So he just moves on to the beach, basically, Slapton, and continues preaching. And uh, it's this extraordinary, um, it's extraordinary ministry, really, that he didn't want to leave the people that he'd built up. So when he left the Church of England in 1662, he basically stayed as close as he could um, without actually being in the parish, which was the rule. So that's why he used to preach out on the sands, so the reason he preached out on the sands is because the, um, the parish boundary only extended as far as the mean high water mark. Extraordinary. So when you buy an ordnance survey map and it has the mean high water mark mapped on it, that's because it's the parish boundary. Good gracious. So he would go and stand at low tide outside the parish boundary and preach. They couldn't do anything about it gracious. until they passed the Five Mile Act, after mm. which um, he had to go further away. Mm. But he still stayed within reach. So he just wanted to preach to his people. He wanted to bring the word of God to them. So I just think that kind of that kind of courage and resilience I, I, I loved. And I think that's reflected in his writings. There's, for Puritans, they're pretty simple. Mm. I think they're, they're easily digestible. I think his writing on providence, really helpful. Mm. So, yeah, I think he's probably, um, you know, he's, a, he's the guy that Eric Lane introduced me to that mm. I really, I can always turn to and enjoy reading. Extraordinary. I had, um, uh, was it by maybe John Piper who said that, uh, or maybe it was Packer, said this whole thing of... Um, why is it that their, their writing still has a fragrance on it? And he says, well, of course, because they weren't just playing games. The variables with which they were dealing had the difference between their having a living and not, exactly and being right. in real danger. Exactly right. And they said, no, I find the beauty, I find the glory in the truth. 
to be uncompromisable, mm. and and thus thus they would uh, they would stand on it, and and the congregation followed him into that. Mm. So these, these they did, and and these greats were always putting their lives on the line, and people saw that. Mm. So ministry was costly. Mm. I think we've lost sight of that really, yes, and. Yes. Um, it's interesting, if you read through 2 Timothy, which I've just been doing recently, you get this sense that, that there is suffering associated with ministry. That just goes with the territory. Mm. And these guys knew that. They experienced it, and people saw it. It's the same with all the great missionaries, of course. Mm. You, know, you read these stories and biographies of them. Actually, what really moves you is, is not necessarily the, the hundreds of converts, but just the, the cost that they went through mm. to win even one convert. Mm. And in some cases, not win any converts, but mm. just to, mm. to do what the Lord had called them to do. And when we were living in East London, we were not far from one of Hudson Taylor's houses. Mm. So um, there was a house literally just um, about 100 yards from where we lived, and it had a blue plaque on it. Unfortunately, the blue plaque said nothing about Hudson Taylor, but it said um, uh, that actually this is the house um, where Dr. Bernardo first lived when he came to London, mm. which is true. Um, but Dr. Bernardo came to live with Hudson Taylor. So he'd heard Hudson Taylor in Ireland. And um, he was very moved by it, wanted to go to China. Mm. And so he, Hudson Taylor said, come and, and, and live with me and train as a, a doctor, because that's what would be needed in China. So he came over to East London and actually never got further than East London, as, mm. uh, as, as many people perhaps may know the story. So this house is just around the corner, this sort of testament to, to this courageous man. Mm. And I, I once, we were talking about John Piper, I once took John Piper there to see it, because mm -hmm. uh, before the Evangelical Ministry Assembly I used to run, um, we used to have the speakers round for a meal, and um, it was a sort of slightly awkward evening, and no one was saying very much. And um, so I said to the people who were there, as one or two speakers, I said, um, "Anybody want to come out for a walk? I'll show you Hudson Taylor's house?" And people weren't particularly enthusiastic, but but John was, "Yeah, I want to go and see it." So so we went around the corner, and um, it's, you, you've got to picture it. It's a four-story um, Victorian London townhouse, so very narrow. But, but quite tall, and the, the basement, you kind of look down into the basement from the pavement. And a, a new family had just moved in, they didn't have any curtains, and they were eating in their dining room. And the dining room was just by the basement window. And so we went and stood and had a look at this plaque, and um, John said to me, I think we need to pray. We need to pray for more courageous people to be raised up. That's a good thing to do. So I thought maybe we might pray for 30 seconds, but no, we didn't. We prayed for several minutes, rather long minutes, with, with John, with his hands you know, raised up in the air, pushing down on this house in a wonderful little tableau, really, with this rather bemused family looking up <laughs> from their basement, wondering what was going on. And um, myself and another guy that had, had gone with John trying to hide behind a lamppost in case anybody saw us. But he was exactly right. You know, these people had great courage. That's what set them apart. They, they, yeah. they knew what God had called them to do, and they were willing to even lay down their lives to do it. Very interesting point. Mm. Yes, I'm sure. I'm convinced there are people... It's an interesting fact that we admire... Christians who are sometimes our heroes, but frequently, I say generally, is it not the case that the people we admire are not just theologians? You don't name your kid after a theologian usually. You name them after you name them after pastors, people who have actually stood on the glorious, convincing truth. And uh, it concerns you that uh, when when people's heroes might just be technicians. Mm. Well, when you, I mean, the great theologians were all pastors, weren't they? So you only yeah. have to read Luther's you know, his letter to his barber. Mm. Or you only have to read Calvin's um, letters, his pastoral letters that he wrote. One extraordinarily moving letters that he would write to pastors who were in trouble, or he'd write to widows of pastors who had died. 
And um, you realise actually the things that we know about Calvin, we, we tend to focus on his theology and on some of the, the, you know, some of the things that happened in Geneva that we think, oh, were they right or were they wrong? But actually, he was a pastor, first yes. and foremost. Yes. And he wanted to go and preach the word of God every day because he wanted people to hear it. Mm. And I mm. think that's true of all these, these greats. That's why they're greats, I because see. they have that pastoral heart. Yes, yes, yes. I hear that they unveiled upon him, the other pastors in Geneva, to stop him from doing so much visiting, that's right. visitation. That's right. And another fellow, the great pastor of uh, the great exemplary pastor Baxter, who's buried in the city of London, or who was buried in the city of London before the, the church uh, was bombed. When he arrived in Kidderminster, there was an average number going to the church. But by the time he left, the majority not only was going, but was celebrating family worship in the home. But the technique, if there was such, was that he would start at one end of Kidderminster and his associate would start at the other, and they would go through all the families in the church right. twice a year. And everyone would be catechized. How's it going with your devotions? How's it going with your marriage? How's it going with your family, your work, your money, and so on? How's it going? And they feed the people. Which is a great thing I learned from Eric, actually going around with him, not just sitting at his feet, but, but he would go and visit people. And he would sit down with them, and they would, they would start on you know, weather and sport and all sorts of things. And pretty soon he would bring the conversation around to, how's it going with you? Yeah. He would say, what are you reading at the moment? You oh, know, what, what have you read in your Bible recently? And mm. um, what do you think of the sermon on Sunday? Mm. And he, he would ask quite helpful, open questions that would just get the conversation spiritual. Mm. And that's, that's the pastor's heart. He wants to know how people are doing spiritually. Mm. He doesn't just want to know about their, you know, their sore toes. Mm. He wants to know how their sore toes are affecting them, actually, how they're responding to it spiritually, how they're mm. dealing mm. with adversity and trials yeah. and things. Yeah, and, and, and also the, 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 there, is a, there is an understanding that a pastor is someone who's just a nice, soft gentleman. But actually, uh, it sounds like he's, he was provoking people back to Christ. And he just, a shepherd doesn't just make sure you, you know, you're, you're not septic, but a, a shepherd takes you where there's good food. It's why, it's why the shepherd metaphor is so helpful, isn't it? it, it it's just so deeply layered mm. and obviously so rooted in Scripture, so rooted in, in the person of Jesus. But actually, it's a wonderful metaphor mm. because it, it works at so many different levels for describing not only how a pastor should be caring for his flock, but actually how every Christian should be caring for one another at some level. This is it, yeah, and it's the giving out. There can be a stagnation if there isn't a flow. You know, the old, you know what an oxbow lake is? Indeed. Do you remember yes. that yes. from Christmas? Well, I gave up geography in the, third, <laughs> the old third year, whatever that's called these days. <laughs> yeah, year something. Year nine. Yeah, um, but I still know what Oxbow Lake is. Doesn't everybody? That's the question everybody hoped would come up in the exam and never did. <laughs> I know what, I know what an Oxbow Lake is. Yes. Never mind chalk escarpments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, you're exactly right. Yeah, because yeah, if, if it doesn't flow, there's, there can be a stagnation. But there's a giving. There's a giving which comes from a bountiful supply, which is, which is there in Christ. I, I can't just see that as theory. That is something which is promised. He was speaking of the Spirit, says John. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Excellent. Now, what's new with you um, presently, Adrian? What are you, what's, uh... I think what's new with me is I've just finished reading a book. I, mean, I, I read a lot, get through quite a few books. Um, I like to do that. Um, just to keep myself fresh, but actually to be able to tell other people about books I've learnt. I've just finished reading Tim Chester's new book mm -hmm. um, called Enjoying God, um, a good book company book. Uh, Tim Chester, I think, is our best UK author. Writes really well. It helps that he's a pastor, an FIC pastor. That kind of gives me a sense of you know, <laughs> inward worthiness. But that's neither here nor there. Um, he, he writes really well. He's written a book called Enjoying God um, about what the, the title says, that's pretty obvious, but just a very practical but very profound book. And I really enjoyed his focus on providence, actually, 
which again connects back to Flavel, actually, who wrote significantly about providence. And, and just seeing in what God gives us each day a chance to know God better, to walk more closely with him, to experience more of him, mm-hmm. to enjoy him more. Mm. So he gives an example of a man on a, on a train who gets delayed. He's a commuter and he gets delayed. And he gets frustrated by the delays. And he said, well, how do you deal with that? Well, you could just get angry and bitter and write off letters to various people. And instead he tells, uh, using scripture, of how um, you know, this man could use this experience actually as a way of growing in grace and godliness and, and learning more about himself, how he responds to things, learning more about the patience of God and what it means to be in the patience of God and enjoy the patience of God. And so I've, I found it, I, I said to someone the other day, it's, um, it's my favourite book of the year so far, but seeing as it's only the beginning of February, it doesn't sound like much of, a, <laughs> of an accolade, but actually it's a, it's a great book. Mm. It's really helped me just think about circumstances of life. You know, any, any, any give any day... We have things that come to, at us, don't we? That are, Some of them are good, some of them are not so good. Mm. And, and how you deal with those, I think as Christians, we kind of think, oh, well, I'm a Christian, so I'll just be stoical about stuff that doesn't go as I, as I want it to. So mm. there's a bit of bad news. I'm just going to kind of get through it, get through the pain barrier. Mm-hmm. A bit like you're on the treadmill, mm-hmm. and you just kind of say to yourself, just keep going. Mm-hmm. That's not particularly Christian. Mm. Um, a, a more Christian way is to think, well, God is sovereign of all things. What's he teaching me? Mm. Is he disciplining me? Is he encouraging me? Is he showing me something I need to be casting myself upon him for? And, and so Tim talks about that in the book. I found that really helpful. Mm. Personally, very convicting, actually, because I think the nature of the, the role that I do is that there's lots of good news I hear about. There's lots of bad news, um, you know, things that happen. You think, oh, that's, that's yes. a terrible thing. And, yes. and how do you deal with those kinds of disappointments? And the mm. answer is you don't just kind of grit your teeth and grin and bear it. Actually, you think that the Lord is sovereign over everything. Mm. And so I'm, I'm going to read the signs. I'm going to read the providence, which is Flavel's great thing. Mm. He says, you know, we should be reading the signs of providence and recognising that God is sovereign over all things. He's always teaching us, always encouraging us, always building us up. Hmm. Yes, I, and here's a man who's describing enjoying God, but he isn't talking in terms of euphoria. He isn't talking no, in terms of great crescendic explosive moments as the only no, way maybe that maybe hmm. that sometimes yes but how i mean how can you be joyful when you're grieving over someone who's died well you can be if you understand what joy really is hmm. and i think that's the, that's that's the secret essentially to christian life it's it's to be found in christ hmm. and to experience 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 more and more of what it means to be in christ hmm. Fantastic. And Tim has done some good work there, eh? I think so, yeah. I mean, I always enjoy everything Tim writes. Hmm. But um, that particular book I found but personally very helpful. And actually, that's the way to commend it to others, isn't it? If you've read it and not yes. just found it interesting, but found it helpful, then it's yeah. easy to say to others, you need to get a copy and read yes, it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's Yes. How, how, how quickly do you read? I read fairly quickly. When I, when I worked in the city, I was, we were taught to speed read. Um, which you can, only, you can only do if people put lots of padding in books. But actually, there is quite a lot of padding in books, so you, c- you can speed read books. So I would generally read two or three books a week. Gracious me. Although not as thoroughly as I ought to, probably. Mm-hmm. There's a book called uh, How to Read a Book by Van Doren. <laughs> you heard about this Van Doren. Mortimer Adler and Charles Van Doren. And it's recommended by lots of guys who did PhDs, because they say it helps. Essentially, it's hermeneutics, how to mm-hmm. ask questions of a text. Yeah, yeah. But one of the things they said helpfully was, your eye doesn't naturally move along a line of text. But if you put a guide underneath it, 
it helps your eye to stay aligned. Now that's changed everything for me. Actually, my shoulder hurts when I'm reading now because I'm, <laughs> I'm moving the joint, there you go. a retractable pencil along the line. And if you use a retractable pencil, you can just press the button and you can underline and then you carry on. And you, it just, that's got me through considerably. Uh, well, it's interesting you say that because um, in, in our small groups in church, something else that's new, um, we've been reading the Bible together, just reading the Bible together. Not sort of diagnostic questions, not sort of, uh, you know, the sort of Bible study where you guess what's in the leader's head and until you guess what's in the leader's head, you can't go home, not that kind of Bible study. <laughs> We've just been reading large chunks of scripture together. And uh, it's something I've done a few times. Um, the Bible Society kicked it off with something called the Community Bible Experience a few years ago. And they produced a version of the Bible that only had one column on a page, wasn't two columns, it wasn't heavily hyphenated. They took all the verse numbers out, they took all the chapter numbers out, they took the headings out, mm -hmm. they took all the footnotes out. So it was just text on a page, like a book. Mm. Much easier to read. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, if you struggle to read, it's much easier to read the Bible that way. And we just read it as though we received it for the first time. Mm. So we read through Galatians in one go, mm -hmm. as though we were, imagine we were sitting in Galatia and the letter had just been received from Paul and the excitement was there. There's a letter from Paul and come and read it out. And actually, when you read large chunks together and you read out loud, the force comes quite differently. Mm -hmm. And it's not dissimilar, I guess, to sort of just guiding yourself to read in a certain way. Mm -hmm. I, I think we're so conditioned to reading the Bible, particularly in two-column hyphenated format, verse by verse, mm -hmm. that we actually lose some of the wonder and majesty that there is just in the, the reading of Scripture. It's mm. fascinating because they've done that with... Um, uh, there's a couple of uh, editions now. I think the ESV is doing that, has done that. Uh, uh, I don't know do a reader's read. edition, yeah, that's reader's right. Edition, yeah. yeah. Because when the Bible was written, it wasn't with a load of, written with a load of numbers and cross-reference letters right. in that's the right. text, which yeah. can be rather distracting, yeah. especially when it's that annoying thing in the ESV. Every time it says brother, footnote, oh, what is it? It can mean brothers yeah. and sisters. Oh, for goodness sake. So like that bit of the NIV, every time it says leper, it says, can mean various skin disease. And you're thinking, okay, now you've got me thinking yes. about skin disease. Yes. They used to do that with flesh as well. The fle yes. Yeah, the yeah. human nature. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. So, <clears throat> Adrian, I'm delighted to hear your um, <laughs> priorities with reference to visitation, to the devotion of a pastor to the relationships among the people and so on. You're someone who's seen the business world. You've come from an unbelieving background. You've been in pastoral ministry. You've run the EMA, which is the premier evangelical conference in the United Kingdom for several years. It was some, give us a little bit of advice. I think generally churches are not structured for growth. So I think there is wisdom in the world. You've got to be careful and discerning. Um, but, you know, Moses listened to Jethro carefully. Quite what Jethro's status was is a little bit ambiguous, isn't it? But um, he listened to Jethro and he was wise to do so. And I think very often our churches are structured for what they were rather than what we'd love them to be. Hmm. And especially that's true of a growing church. So if you're a church of 50 um, and you're structured a certain way, your elders are probably very hands-on, they know everything that's going on. If you're a church of 100, you can't be like that. Mm -hmm. And if you're a church of 150, actually, you can't be like you were when you were a church of 100. So I think um, the, the business lessons that I've learned are that actually you, you structure appropriately and I think that's what Christians are very bad at. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to embrace one model of ministry, which the Bible doesn't necessarily encourage us towards because it doesn't really spell out exactly what the role of a, an elder is in all the minutiae. Mm -hmm. You know, should the treasurer be an elder or not? Well, you won't find the answer to that in the Bible. Um, so actually what we tend to do is we tend to structure churches, organize ourselves in churches, what we used to be rather than what we want to be. Mm. And I think actually what churches need to grapple with, and many churches are, are beginning to understand this, 
is that if they if they want to grow, which churches should want to do because we want to see people saved, mm. if they want to grow, if they want to be welcoming to newcomers and so on, then actually they've, they've got to set up structures and processes that allow that to happen, which all sounds very businessy. I don't think it's not meant to be. It's, it's, that's, just, that's in the realm of godly wisdom, I think. That's Acts 6 kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's Jethro, Moses, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, any specific, would you recommend there's anyone who's, been, who's written on that where you think, oh, this is a good guy? Um, I think, well, I'd, I'd have to point you towards Ray Evans, so he's um, one of my colleagues at the FIC, works part-time for the FIC, and is a pastor who's very thoughtful about all this stuff. And in fact, he spends some of his time with the FIC going and working with church leadership teams to help them work out exactly how to think these things through. There, unfortunately, there's only one of him, and there are 610 FIC churches and many more other churches besides. So um, he's a great resource. But he's written a book called Ready, Steady, Grow, mm-hmm. which is a helpful book. I think it captures some of this stuff very well. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for uh, reflecting with us, Adrian. You're very welcome. And it's exciting to hear your, uh, your vision, your priorities, and uh, all the very best with the FIEC Associate Directorship. <laughs> thank you very much. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.